You're listening to From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy, a food and culture podcast. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food writer based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Every week on Wednesdays, I'll be talking to different people in food and culture about their lives, careers, and how it all fits together and where food comes in. Today, I'm talking to Lin Yi Ryan, a design journalist as well as the editor and founder of Mold Magazine, which approaches food and the future from a design perspective. It's one of the most innovative food magazines out there with a global scope and an honest relationship to unpleasant realities like hunger, waste, and even fecal matter. We discussed how the magazine came to be, how its point of view has been forged, and its trajectory from the microbiome toward its sixth and final forthcoming issue about soil. Hi, Lindy. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Alicia. I'm so thrilled to be here with you today. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Sure. I grew up in Houston, Texas. I am a first-generation Chinese-American woman, and I basically ate all the things that kids in the 80s ate in the United States. So like Lunchables. I had like I was obsessed with like cookie crisps. I did the whole, you know, Pop-Tarts, all the things. But the difference is that my mother is a dietitian and I just grew up knowing that those things were kind of foods that were just kind of special foods. Like, so (laughs) I would often go to friends' houses to access those things. And because I'm Chinese American, we would typically eat some kind of Chinese-ish every night. My father is like a man of um, ritual. And so he's not super into being very exploratory with his kind of daily meal. So often growing up, my job when I got home from school, because I was a latchkey kid, because it's the 80s, I would, my job was basically to like make the rice. So I had to go into (laughs) our chest freezer and like, you know, dig out cups of rice, wash the rice, and then put it in the rice cooker. So that was very much kind of my experience growing up. We also, my father was like an avid gardener. And because I grew up in Houston, Texas, we have access to the water. And his other passion in life besides gardening is fishing. And so oftentimes we would have fresh vegetables, fresh fruits from the garden and fresh fish that my father had caught and then, you know, scaled and then cleaned and put them in the deep freezer. So that's basically how my parents still eat today. They do a lot of fish. They do rice at every meal. When the season is right, they eat a lot of vegetables and grains from their own garden. But, you know, we also would do at least a weekly trip to Chinatown to get ancient greens and other pantry staples that I grew up eating. And so what first interested you in food? Can you give us kind of a bio, a rundown of of your career? Sure. Well, I've always been interested in food in the sense that food was always the centerpiece of any sort of familial gathering. As a child of immigrants, we would always make an excuse to come together over a meal. So whether that was for, you know, just kind of weekend dim sum with my aunties and uncles and my grandparents or going to my grandmother's house for a meal or something like more celebratory, like, for example, now as adults, my family we meet for Thanksgiving. And so that's kind of our central uh, purpose for meeting. Everything is always revolved around what to eat. And so I think that food always meant 
more to me than just a source of sustenance. It was always, there was always kind of like a reason for celebration when it came to food. And it always meant family and it always meant joy and connection. And so professionally, I have worked in magazines basically my entire career. And I was never really interested in food media in the way that we understand it today. I wrote about design. I wrote about culture. But food media wasn't really something that seemed interesting or accessible to me. I wasn't really interested in like restaurant reviews or 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 recipe development even. But what I was interested in, especially in the kind of 2010s, was this culture of like restaurant pop-ups. And so being from Texas, living in New York, uh, especially in 2010, there was no proper Texas-style barbecue here. And this was this kind of age of like the Brooklyn flea. And so basically the moment I had access to a backyard in my personal space, I bought a smoker and started smoking brisket for friends with, over the summer. So I would like host like a little party at my house and then I would, just, I would smoke a brisket. And one of my friends who was also from Texas and who was also Asian American and first generation was like, hey, we should just do this at like the Brooklyn Fleet. And I was like, oh, I just never thought about that. But OK, I'm down to try. And so we launched a little Texas style barbecue business and started slinging brisket sandwiches at the Brooklyn Flea. And so that was kind of my first entry into a more professional understanding of food, besides like, you know, being a waitress when I was in college and that type of thing. But again, not really interested in like the traditional uh, modes of like working in food. Like I wasn't interested in opening a restaurant. So that's, yeah, I just, food has just always been part of my, my understanding of who I am and how I navigate the world and why I travel and why I would like visit certain neighborhoods in New York or even with friends at that age. And still today, we always gather around food. Of course. And so how did mold come to be? So I was working as an, an editor for an industrial design resource called Course MB7 when I started seeing a lot of really interesting food design projects. And they were primarily from students often, or, or they were speculative in nature. But at the time, most design websites weren't covering anything to do with food design because their focus was really on like furniture and lighting interior objects. And so I was like, well, I'm I love food. You know, I'm interested in food. I am a design journalist. I'm very well situated to actually write about this. So I was like, well, let me just like start a little nights and weekends project where I would write about these interesting food design projects that I, I would come across that didn't really have a lot of space in other places for publication. So Mold was just a nights and weekends project. I reached out to a friend who connected me with a designer and I was like, hey, you know, can you give me like a updated blog spot template or like maybe like a Tumblr template for this project I want? And he was like, oh, actually, I can just like design a whole website for you. It'll probably take about the same amount of energy. And so I worked with him on creating a kind of vessel for these project ideas. And that was basically our online presence for the first like seven years of mold. <laughs> and so it kind of immediately became something that felt 
real. And that was uh, the start of all of it. Right. That's so fascinating. And I feel like now I, because I come from, well, I work in magazines too, but I come as a writer from writing about literature or writing about food specifically and restaurants and the recipe development. So like this whole other side of it that is more mainstream. And then recently I've been reading so much about not just with mold, but also like these writers, usually from the Netherlands, <laughs> I don't know, doing like like la- like really thinking about food systems regionally and like how design fits into all of that and like how, you know, architecture is a food systems issue and like things I hadn't thought about at all because I never thought about those things at all because, <laughs> because they just they weren't in my my mental wheelhouse, I suppose. But, um, you know, I it's been so fascinating to find these these actual connections. And I, I it it just seems like such a lost possibility to talk about them more broadly or, or you know, in a way that's more accessible. It, it seems like a lost opportunity for food media specifically, like not to be talking about how food fits into design and fits into landscapes and and yeah, yeah. I mean it's like insane because design is such this is a bit of an obscure profession in a lot of ways because on one hand everything is design like literally everything in your built environment was designed by a human somebody made a decision about the materiality about its shape about the way it was going to be produced, how it was actually going to, like the system that does, that not only makes the thing, but then gets it to you in a store or in your home is also designed. The system in which we live is designed. So everything that is, surrounds us is designed, yet nobody talks about design as a lever as a kind of invisible kind of layer into the world that we live in. I think often because design is about complexity and most, the way that we're educated, especially in the United States, is not about complexity. It's about creating a lot of dichotomies. It's about enforcing binaries. It's about telling stories around ways that things cannot change. And so I think that by introducing design as this kind of wild card within the conversation about food, it makes people nervous because it's hard to explain like why we have apples 365 days out of the year at every single grocery store, deli, bodega, whatever. Like you can get an apple or one species of banana everywhere all the time so how why is that like it's a it's a huge question that nobody really wants to answer right because it is that it 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 is so much complexity and you're right that that is is something we're trained not to do i think the only time people in food media talk about design is to talk about a restaurant how it looks that's right and that's literally the the extent of it and and yeah yeah Well, I mean, and so the one fascinating thing to me about mold, and it's something that I'm, you know, I, you can find in literature, you can find in art criticism, but you don't really find in food, is that it has a global scope. You know, it's something that food magazines based in the U.S. tend to not be open to. You know, Whetstone, I always, is an exception, of course. Stephen's incredible. <laughs> incredible. Yes. And so, you know, you 
you claim the phrase the future of food, too, without it being solely about food tech, which is like something I've been thinking about so much, which is how this 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 phrase has become to, you know, be the synecdoche for this one way of looking at the future in food. And so basically, you know, how did Mold's point of view come about to be global in scope, to be about the future, but to to be so, you know, broad, basically, mm-hmm. in, in what it will look at? Right. So, you know, I I started just being interested in food design as this weird emerging corner of the design world. And through the work of writing about a student project that was actually a poster project, I came to learn about the coming food crisis. And so in a lot of ways, this student project by an Australian designer named Gemma Warner really did the job of what she had set out to do, which was to tell the story around the coming food crisis, to raise this flag that the United Nations basically warned that if we continue eating the way that we do today, that we will not be able to produce enough food to feed all 9 billion people by the year 2050. And that fact totally just stopped me in my tracks. I had A, no idea that there was a coming food crisis. B, didn't realize that it was literally like 30 years down the line at that point is like 35 years around the corner. And I was like, that's within our lifetime. Yeah. And, you know, there was consciousness around climate change at the time, but it's not the way that we talk about it in the urgency that we talk about it today. And so that student project completely shifted the course of the editorial focus for Mold from being kind of a general interest in like food and design into being kind of like a warning bell to designers that, hey, you actually have the professional tools to offer solutions at various scales for this coming food crisis. And so that has been our focus and our mission since. And I think that the global scope of that is in a lot of ways, the global nature of design where oftentimes best practices and ideas from many different disciplines influence the way that we think about design. And also design in some ways is kind of a, it's more of a scaffolding in a lot of ways. So designers are A, trained to ask the right questions, B, work in this very interdisciplinary way. And the future of design really lays in this idea of designing with people or designing with others, whether they're living or non-living entities. And then there's a lot of space for that conversation where that is not, there's not a lot of space for that conversation in a lot of other fields. And so being, uh, just kind of planting my flag in the future of food was a way of signaling that we are facing this coming food crisis, but also to say, hey, like we cannot address this in a kind of techno bro kind of way. Like design has always taught us that in, in order for something to be successful, it that needs to be aspirational. It needs to be joyful. It needs to speak to the human condition. It needs to be emotional. And, and I think that those things, again, are kind of woven into the fabric of what design understands the world to be. And so it's always grounded me in the fact that Our solutions cannot be merely technological, especially when it comes to food. Food is not just like a source of nutrients. Like food is so much more as your audience totally understands. (laughs) And so that's why I didn't think food tech was the sole answer. The other thing is that like 
let's just be honest that like food tech being heralded as the kind of future of food is about perpetuating systems of capitalism. Like who owns food technology? I'm interested in design solutions or solutions that are, you know, grounded in systems that can be owned by people that are not, you don't have to pay like somebody else to participate in this thing, but you have autonomy, you have agency, you have sovereignty to determine what your food future looks like for yourself, for your community, for your family. And those are, that's not the way that technology in the way that we think about it today works. It's very much about top-down control. It's a bit, very much about hierarchies of like, this is what you're going to eat and this is how you're going to eat it. I mean, at the time, people were really excited about, you know, hydroponic greens grown in warehouses. And they were like, that's the future of food. And I was like, first of all, I'm a person who doesn't eat salad period. Like, I mean, I do sometimes like in the summer if I'm feeling a certain kind of way, but it's not part of my like typical diet. And I'm sure because I'm Chinese American, like it's not part of a lot of people's diets. Like I don't see, you know, people most basically most of the people in the world are not eating salad every day. So I realized very early that those technological solutions were not for me. They're, they they right. weren't trying to solve for me. And, and once again, just being a little bit outside of that kind of, I would say, I like the person that those technological solutions are designing for allows me to be like, well, what else is there? You know, and ask those no, questions. No, it's really funny that you brought up the gar- the, the hydroponic gardens, because that's exactly how that was my kind of introduction to food tech and then and the solutionism of it and the way And I was like, but what is the end result of this? Is it like we buy lettuce subscriptions? Like, am I going to have like a Spotify subscription for lettuce? And just like, is that what you're envisioning? Like, I don't understand what the perp, like, how is this literally the future of food? Also, a lot of that hydroponic lettuce has no freaking flavor whatsoever. So it's like, what actually are we trying? Because I used to work for at Edible Brooklyn and they did they started like for a few years, they had this event called Food Loves Tech, which was yep. just my absolute nightmare. And so, yeah, just just trying to deal with that perspective on the future of food. I was like, none of this makes any sense. And then it just kind of got worse from there. I think we're hope in a moment of like a little bit of clarity around it. I don't know. I'm like, I'm now this is what I'm asked to talk about, like to college students about like, wait, like, what is this is are we supposed to be thinking about food like this? Is there another way we can think about food? So like, I, I'm hoping that we're kind of over the hump of food tech solutionism because it is it it was a very troubling moment. And, and people made a lot of money off of it. But I, I think now there people are finally kind of like seeing the the wizard behind the curtain of 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 it all in terms of like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, there's I, I, I don't think that there's a single silver bullet for the future of food. Exactly. And, and, you know, if you are somebody who eats salad every day, which is a lot of people in the United States, like it's a great thing to be able to grow salad greens hydroponically. You're probably not eating them because you like the taste of radicchio, like you're eating them for a different reason. (laughs) So it's okay that maybe it doesn't taste like the best salad you've ever had in your life or the best best piece of lettuce. (laughs) Like, you know, but I also am interested in like, how can we stop 
replicating the same extractive models that we have been working in over the last hundred years, like this kind of industrial capitalist model. Where does where does that stop and where can we find new models or reach back for older models of reproducing nutrients, producing food that is culturally appropriate for the populations that are eating it that reflect the actual uh, capacity of the land that is being used to produce it. And I think that those questions are much more interesting than um, saying, okay, you know, lab-grown meat or salad greens grown hydroponically is the only answer for the future of food. Right, exactly. Well, you know, Mold has had, as you know, Mold has had uh, five print issues so far. How has the point of view of the magazine changed or not changed over, over the course of that time? Yeah. So I think that this kind of interest in regional, local solutions for our, our, or, or models for f- our kind of f- new food systems, this interest has really come into sharp focus over the course of the last five issues. So if you look at the first issue, the, or- the issues have been organized by scale and, and loosely. So from the micro to the macro. So the first issue was about designing for the microbiome. And the second issue was about designing objects for the table. The third issue was designing food waste. The fourth was about designing for human senses. And the fifth issue was about seeds, which we could talk a little bit more about later. But the idea was to go from the micro to the macro. And the first issue, there's a lot of kind of speculative projects. And I think that it was important to have more provocative ideas in the first issue because it was a a way to kind of capture our audience and engage them in these questions because they're visually interesting, but also asking you some hard questions about what your vision of the future of food should look like. But through writing about all these things, I realized that like the most important thing is for us to actually have a relationship with our food, which is such a simple idea, but one that is so divorced from our typical reality of eating and procuring foods. And so now that we're kind of five issues in and then we're working on our final issue right now, the focus on, well, let's ground these solutions in something that works for you and me living in different places and recognizing that those solutions are probably going to be very, very different. There is not a single solution for the world. Like, and there shouldn't be. And that, that mindset is also a very kind of colonial understanding of the way food works. So if we can just break out of this idea that there's going to be one answer for everybody, how does design that support the kind of multiplicity, the complexity of, of living networks? And that living network includes the microbes in the soil, the pollinators in the air, the, you know, the food itself that's being grown in the ground or not in the ground. Like all of these things are all networked together in this kind of what we think about as the food web. And what is the human place in all of that? How can it be more equitable for both, uh, or not both, for everything, all everything involved in this web? So that's that's kind of the progression, and I and I and I 
you know, the the nice thing about publishing an independent magazine without any sort of advertiser or kind of outside pressures is that we get to take that journey for ourselves. We get to come out the end and be like, I'm in a totally different place than when I started. And I'm totally cool with that. But this is the thing that really gets me out of bed this in the morning. These are the kind of intellectual, but also I would say like life and death questions that I am most excited about talking about. I love that so much. And I, yeah, the it being publishing independently, I think, is the only way to ans- ask those questions or That's right. <laughs> the only way That's to right. really be engaged with the world. Yeah. 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 And <laughs> thankfully, we have new models and media right. that allow for that, because as you know, like, just a couple of years ago, people were like, media is dead, print is dead. And through that kind of fire, we have come with all these new, more interesting independent models that support independent people, independent ideas. Um, and I'm so thankful for, for, yeah. for those conversations. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me in reading Mold is that it is a food magazine. It's about food, but it also acknowledges hunger. And, you know, it acknowledges the unpleasant aspects of food and the unpleasant aspects of food systems and whether that's like waste that is that is wasteful in general, whether it's hunger, whether it's like literally the fact that we excrete our food after we eat it you know well, these are not is food <laughs> it <laughs> is food and so, <laughs> i mean we've talked about how you've developed your perspective on on these issues but you know are there other publications other media other writers have you seen a different approach to food system issues emerge and how you know how have you gotten new insight new perspective from, from in food Well, I think that the kind of reckoning of the last couple of years of mainstream food media has really brought a more, I would say, global and diverse group of voices to the forefront. And I think that that's been very exciting for me because, you know, we we mentioned Whetstone earlier, but I love that Stephen has a South Asia correspondent for the work that he's doing. And even like larger mainstream publications that we don't necessarily have to name are <laughs> diversifying their editors and writers. And I think that's so, so critical just to have different voices that are going to reflect the reality of what it needs to eat and drink today in the United States. What would be really revolutionary would be to have people from various classes actually being able to participate in more mainstream food media, because I still think that there's this kind of food media comes with this understanding that you have access to all these things. And that's not true for the majority of people living in the United States. And so what does it mean to have a complete joyful meal for Americans or people living in the United States who don't have access to, you know, the grocery store in their neighborhood or, you know, a relationship with a farmer. I mean, what can food media do to so to support the idea that every person living in the United States should have access to yeah. how that, that would support both the agricultural systems that are really floundering in the United States. A lot of small farmers are not making it out of this pandemic 
with the people who actually need those nutrients. You know, it's just, uh, there's just so many ways that I think by talking about the food system as this kind of naughty, complicated place that is designed in a very inequitable fashion, just starting from that place of understanding would allow for so much more conversation to be had. A a big difference, I think, between when we started and today is that many mainstream publications are recognizing that we are facing a food crisis. It's something that they might be wedging into the larger conversation around climate change, which makes a lot of sense because agricultural production is one of the largest producers of greenhouse gases, but also architecture and Mm -hmm. building is construction is one of the largest contributors of greenhouse gas. But like, yes, we should. I mean, obviously climate change is like this urgent thing, but like the way that we eat is very much entwined and entangled in this conversation and should be like the fact that food media isn't ringing this bell every day is like very, very disappointing. And also, uh, I think a huge disservice to the people who read and enjoy food media. Like, yeah, yeah. No, it's hard. I I did an interview last week that when it comes out, that'll be very weird. But I was asked, why do I talk about sustainability and, you know, making one's food life sustainable as though it is challenging? Why do I say it isn't easy to be sustainable? And I was like, well, because most people are floundering economically. You know, most, you know, most people do not have the time, the access. And, you know, she asked specifically, like, and I was like, well, you know, eating, caring about your food is, is a privilege because it is time expensive. And I think that you do do a disservice to not talk about that time expense. And I think about that with how I write recipes, which is like, you know, a baking recipe is a different thing because it's always going to be something kind of frivolous and unnecessary and whimsical. And that's what it's supposed to be. But when you're talking about like a food item that you use to sustain yourself, it's like there's no reason for this to be unnecessarily complicated. You know, just there is a way to write recipes that taste really good, but that are broken down into the bare necessities of what you need to get a certain flavor or a certain, you know, something like I don't think it's necessarily, you know, Basically, I think that like aspiration and accessibility can it coexist. You just have to approach it in a way that is mindful of the constraints that most people live under. Yeah. And the, the capitalist constraints, right? Like not to keep yeah. harping on like this capitalist system we live in. But like, <laughs> I just think that if we're going to talk about the food system, we have to talk about capitalism. Yes. Because, you know, capitalism is telling you that your time should be focused on working. Like you are a worker within the capitalist system. And before our work was actually caring for our families and producing edible things to eat. And Mm -hmm. that was the work that we did. And so, you know, if you really want to get into it, like with the time constraints, like I also I have two very, very small children. So completely understand the, the challenges of what it means to feed your family with time constraints. But also like, I'm interested in what it looks like to cook in a non-extractive kitchen where we use things like solar cookers or rainwater catchments or, you know, thinking about kind of the circularity of the systems. And those things, in theory, are incredible. Like if you live in a sunny place, that also gets rain. But cooking on a solar cooker, like, takes a really long time and a lot of planning that we don't 
typically have the mind space to actually consider. Yeah. And so, no. yeah, I mean, I, I really, I really feel for, you know, single parents out there, people who have multiple mouths to feed in their homes while working, while yeah. trying to like, you know, make time for themselves. Like it's an impossible task within the system. And it's, I think food is one of the best ways to be able to talk about these things because it is, it affects everyone. It is a source of joy typically for yeah. people. And, you know, like it's easier in a lot of ways to talk about how you make rice and like, you know, than it is to talk about like the system in which it's produced. And so <laughs> like starting to tie it by, by talking about like what it is that you love to eat and why is a great way to like have these larger conversations around what the future of the food should look like. Because realistically, we should all be able to have a kind of voice in that shaping what that is. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I we've, we've touched on it, but, you know, in the broader food media, because because mold is so singular and unique and cool in its design. I, you know, what, where do you feel that design and food media, you know, outside of your own magazine, like are, where do, where could these intersect in a way that does make these subjects, you know, comprehensible for people or, or, you know, where, like, where could food media be better about design? I think that just a recognizing that design is a factor in our food and our relationship with food, I think is a great starting place because there is a kind of focus on design as this like, you know, tableware aesthetic or what we talked about as interior design with restaurants, which also, you know, there's a place that that could be really radical and interesting, but, you know, it's, it's not that accessible. And those aren't necessarily the projects that are being spoken about because as we mentioned earlier, like construction is a huge contributor to climate change. So what does it mean to build a place in which you are ingesting natural things into your body or maybe unnatural things, whatever, but literally bringing things into your body to like be, become the person you are. Like, right. what does it mean to do that in a space that is equally considered as far as its materiality, as far as its design for like the physical hands that are like producing uh, those dishes or cleaning the dishes or cleaning the space? Like, what does that look like? And I think that I just think that by focusing on the well, just recognizing that we're living in a very, very designed world is a huge starting place. I mean, mold looks the way that it does because our art director and designers are just incredible human beings like Eric Hu, Matt Sang, Jenna Myung. They really have created this very unique visual language for the magazine. And through their work, we have been able to reach our primary audience, which is designers. Like we mm -hmm. want designers to pick up a copy of Mold, recognize that it is a design artifact to engage with and kind of dig into the more, I would say, dense, naughty, complex conversations that are happening within the publication. And it's really through their design choices that that has been able to happen. 
And so, you know, I just want to recognize that the magazine itself is very much a collaborative effort between our contributors, our editors, our art directors, our designers to produce this really, I I would say, like, we're we're kind of hard to pin down. Like, we don't really (laughs) fit in the current ecosystem of food media which is great. And we don't fit in the ecosystem of design media either. We kind of have our own little planet somewhere in all of that. And I'm so, so I'm totally okay with it. Right. Well, that is interesting though, because I do, you know, why, why do you think food occupies such a strange space when we're talking about it, you know, as a cultural subject because you know it it does touch on all of these things it's a it's there are political aspects there are economic aspects there are labor aspects there are ecological aspects there are design aspects but you know that like most aspects of culture it touches on a lot of things but food isn't taken as seriously as as other parts or do you think it do you disagree with that you know do you see food as something that is taken seriously as as an area of cultural critique and study or you know is it is it not i i i see that i i can consistently feel like people don't take food seriously <laughs> yeah that i don't do, agree who do take other things seriously yeah yeah i agree i think it's because food is multi-sensorial yeah. and it's something that's kind of been historically relegated to the work of women And so I think that for those reasons, it's oftentimes not taken very seriously. I mean, our just weird society is just like, oh, anything that brings you pleasure can't be serious, right? Like, and, you know, I, I'm always just, so I love sharing this, this little nugget of information, which is that eating is the only thing we do besides having sex that engages all of our senses. And it's, a truth and it speaks to how important it is to ground food and joy and community and being fully multisensory because we as humans are designed to experience it that way. But I think because of that, often it's relegated to this kind of soft, like murky place of like feelings, you know, (laughs) and I don't, and that's not considered serious. It's also just so fundamental. It's like, oh, we can take, we can give an, a biennial to architecture, right? But like in Venice, but like once you talk about like the biennial of beans, which is the thing that I want to produce and make <laughs> in my life, like nobody wants to talk about that. I mean, it's, it's the foundation of the things that we do, like every exactly. day we eat. Yeah. Well, how do you define abundance? This is such a critical question in the world that we live in today because yeah. I think the concept of abundance is a very radical concept within a capitalist system because capitalism tells you that we everything is about scarcity. Like luxury is about scarcity. It's about what I can afford that you can't afford. There's only so many of these things, these widgets, and I have to own one. Whereas if we look to nature, we see that there are models of care, models of network systems, trust and interdependence that consistently tell us that nature is abundant. Like you think about a single seed creates a single plant that then creates hundreds, if not thousands of more seeds. If that kind of scale of one to a hundred or a thousand 
doesn't indicate abundance, then I don't know what does. Like if we can all understand that implicitly we are connected to one another, there is more than plenty for everyone. It's just about understanding the systems in which that can that interaction, that interdependence is nurtured and cared for as opposed to like squashed and, you know, us living in these weird like isolated bubbles. And that's a very long definition of abundance, but that's how <laughs> I, I think about it. I look to nature to kind of help me understand and remind me because I'm not always living in an abundance mindset, you know, mm-hmm. I like I like there was the other day, the Spanish fashion house Loewe, they like dropped a spirited away collaboration. And I was just on the internet, like, like window shopping. I was like, oh, I just went like $5,000 so I could buy this t-shirt or like, you know, like I'm I'm like not a perfect example of that, but like, you know, we do what we can and like, we and honestly, just like gardening every season, planting seeds every season, knowing that some of those seeds aren't going to germinate. Some of them will, some of them won't survive when I put them outside. But then the ones that do survive will give me more seeds for next year. That cycle is just so humbling. And just a reminder that like, if we can just like trust a little bit that there's a lot more to access in the world that we can maybe understand in this moment. Yeah. Well, and for you, is cooking a political act? Oh, without a doubt. Like (laughs) I didn't fully understand this or have the language for it until I read this zine that came out in 2020 from Clarence Kwan and his Instagram is the God of Cookery. And he is a Chinese Canadian creative director, but also cooks at a Chinese restaurant on the weekends. And he put this little zine out called Chinese Protest Recipes. And it just reminded me that the cooking the food of my family, of my ancestors, is a form of resistance. I just like, sure, I love to cook whatever thing is in vogue, right? Like, you know, sheet pan dinner is great. (laughs) And I I do that often for my family. But when I cook the food that reminds me of my grandmother and serve that to my children, it's a way of saying that like, this cannot be like homogenized. This can't be taken away from me. It can't be taken away from my, my family or my children. And I think that that is a great reminder for all of us that like, you know, what we cook and what we feed our, our families, what nourishes us can and should be an act of resistance. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, thank you so much. It's just been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much to everyone for listening to this week's edition of From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy. Read more at aliciakennedy.news or follow me on Instagram, Alicia D. Kennedy, on Twitter at Alicia Kennedy.